Welcome to this third episode of the podcast formerly known as Lifting the Veil on Mental Health. I'm Sean Newell. That's Laura Books over there. How are you doing today, Laura? Hi, Sean. I'm doing great. Awesome. Thank you for asking. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So so I said the podcast formerly known as Lifting the Veil on Mental Health because we had to change the name to the podcast. And I'll get to that, what our new name is here in just a second. But, but first off, I'm obviously not too bright when it comes to naming podcasts because name the podcast Lifting the Veil on Mental Health thought it was a really clever name. And come to find out, so did about 30 other people because there are several podcasts named Lifting the Veil. So hence, um, you couldn't find it when you were searching for it. So probably time for a good name change. Well, I love the new name, Sean. Yeah. Do you want to tell everybody what it is? It's I've got a feeling. Which also ties very well into mental health and mm-hmm. also ties into the old name of Lifting the Veil, which was a line from a John Lennon song. And now we've got a song that's by the Beatles that we've named it after. So uh, kept with the theme, at least. So that's mm-hmm. that's a good thing, at least. So I uh, love it. Yeah. So um, anyway, now the podcast is called I've Got a Feeling. So um, now we've got a few things to talk about, especially about our second episode and some reaction to that. But first off, we do have an awesome guest this time for the podcast. Do you want to tell everybody who that is? Yes. We have Dr. Andrea Cremens, who is a music therapy professor at Illinois State University and she's going to be on later to hopefully help everyone understand music therapy and how it how we use it yeah especially for counseling you know and how mm-hmm. and how they train people to do that i mm-hmm. mean it's 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 something that i i believe a lot of people probably think oh it's music and i just listen to music and i feel better that's not what it's about and she'll talk about how that's not what it's about and and what it truly is so um very interesting yeah. interview coming up with uh yes. with andrea so um first off though so our first two episodes dropped a few weeks back maybe a month or so ago now and the one thing that I get from the uh, people that have listened to it, and it is not, we have not like widely advertised this podcast yet. So we've got, you know, dozens and dozens of people at mm-hmm. this point who have listened, but we're going to, we're going to widely advertise it more coming up here in an episode or two. But the number one thing that people have remarked to me about is the story that you told about the killing of the rabbits <laughs> in front of you when you were a little kid. And, and um, they just, that's what everybody wants to know. I had somebody tell me that we should in our logo have a, have a picture of a dead rabbit i thought that was a little much mm-hmm. but um but that was that was interesting but uh people really um i don't know i don't want to say enjoyed but they they were interested in your rabbit story i think it's not normal for people to eat rabbits you you'd have to think that maybe yeah. maybe you'd have to think that i mean i did remark that you were from a kind of a strange small town it sounded like so uh it must be different than how other people grew up so i don't know place where uh there's plenty of rabbits to eat and i hear i hear they like make a stew on the fourth of july you know strange Mm -hmm. things like that i wonder if there's rabbits in the stew it's possible 
So, a lot of people, I think, wonder if there's rabbit in that stew, or cats, or, or cats, or whatever. So, um, mm-hmm. anyway, moving on though, I thought I thought uh, it was interesting how much people enjoyed your story about uh, about rabbits being decapitated in front of you and then killed and then later eaten at the dinner table. So, so anyway, uh, yeah, fun stuff. So, uh, one story I want to get to before we talk to Andrea, and mm-hmm. that is a story that came from Psychology Today by mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Joseph Davis, and it's talking about how. People are diagnosing, self-diagnosing, perhaps, their mental health conditions and then putting that on TikTok, you know, saying that I'm depressed or I have anxiety Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. I mean, you know, as you being a counselor, you know, all of the official diagnosis that people can have a lot better than I do. But Mm -hmm. but that's interesting to me that something that used to be such a stigma, having a mental health issue, people are so forthright about putting out there for the world to see now, at least what they have in their opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is, it is interesting. And I think in a lot of ways, a movement in a very positive direction when it comes to um, opening those, those conversations up, you know, if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling bad, if I'm feeling a certain way, People are going out there and either sharing their feelings, and in this case, maybe labeling or them or mislabeling them incorrectly, or um, and then well, sharing. And then if you're not feeling a certain way, other people are finding those and then, um, you know, connecting to them, which I think is very helpful on both ends. One thing that is interesting, though, that uh, that Dr. Davis put in this thing is that uh, that self-diagnosis is actually misleading because it implies that in labeling experience, lay people and doctors are both the same. And you mm-hmm. can't. So diagnosis comes from somebody in the medical field or somebody that's a counselor or trained therapist like you are. And people can't actually self-diagnose because the term the term is actually different than that. Correct. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Technically I can't, you can't diagnose yourself because you're not a person who does diagnosis. Right. And that's very true. But from a clinical standpoint, someone comes in and says, I I'm pretty sure I I have this mental illness. I'm going to say, okay, let's figure it out. You know, Mm -hmm. let's start the conversation. It gives them a language to to use and a way to express how they're feeling or an idea about maybe something what's going, what is something that's going wrong. And I think in that respect, it's not bad always to, to feel connected to a diagnosis and bring that to a clinician or somebody who is trained to help and use that as that starting point. Um, at all. So, so, you, so you're actually, if, if you're going to seek actual professional help, if you will, when you think you've got something wrong, you're not actually against somebody looking up stuff to figure out what it is maybe before they come in. Cause it can maybe give you a little bit of a roadmap. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I would say, I would say that's what I'm saying. I don't want, yeah, I can see the downsides. I can see how they're talking about um, these videos coming out and, and having mistakes are not um, things that are accurate about the diag- diagnosis. And then someone appropriating that as part of them, and that can be very, very detrimental if they don't seek help or, I don't know, they could, it can be 
it can be bad. Well, it could in be a lot they, of ways. It, it could be if they try to self-medicate also. Certainly. Yes. Yes. I mean, how far does that go? Mm-hmm. But if it helps them to feel as they understand something about themselves enough to know that I've got something going on here. I want some help with this. And that's going to drive them to come to my office. Then I say that is helpful. Mm-hmm. And that is something. And I'm not going to ever say to someone, well, you can't really diagnose. You're not a clinician, you know, sure. <laughs> but I'm yeah. going to say, let's take this. Let's explore it. Let me show you what the criteria is. Do you feel like you meet this? Let's um, see what we can do and get to, you know, get to where they need to be. What's the so danger? It helpful. What's the danger in take away all of that? Like if they mm-hmm. self self medicate or they go to see a counselor or whatever, take away all of that and just the actual danger or not danger of putting something like this out on social media that I think I'm I've got anxiety or I think I have depression or something. I think I'm schizophrenic. I mean, you know, it can go a lot of different directions. What's the what's the potential pitfalls or benefit to doing something like that in your opinion? For the person who's present, who, for the person who's putting it out there. Right. And the reason I, reason I say that is, you know, you, you take, and I, and I kind of alluded to this before you, you think about 20 years ago, 10 years mm-hmm. ago, talking about your, your mental health status was something that people just didn't do very much. It's been mm-hmm. more, more the current generation of people that are in their teens and twenties that have been mm-hmm. much more open about their feelings and about their emotions, about Mm -hmm. their mental health status, all of that stuff. I mean, now it's not, it's not a strange thing for somebody who's in their early to mid twenties to flat out tell you up front when you meet them that they've got some sort of mental disorder that you normally, everybody would not share that stuff. It just didn't used to be that way. Is there, is that, is that something that can be liberating for people to do in a public fashion or is there some pitfalls to it too? Yeah. The, the main thing that comes to mind as you're talking is, is your teenage population and what happens when this gets really trendy? What if it's cool to be bipolar? Mm -hmm. And then I find a community of people who are all bipolar. So am I emulating potential symptoms for belonging or acceptance that I may not even have. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very confusing to sort through. And I think that can be detrimental. So it could go either way. Mm -hmm. It's got its pluses and minuses as most things do. I mean, that's not really. Well, and if you're not right Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of labeling and there's a lot of, of I am going to define myself in this way. And this is my mental illness. But really, if you look at, you know, it's not an exact science, the way in which our medical system defines what a mental illness is or which category of mental illness that you might fit into, there's overlap and it shifts and it changes and it's not an exact science by any stretch of the imagination. And so how much then by labeling ourselves with, with that label, then kind of confines us to that space, which could, 
could or could not be helpful. You know, I think, I think that could, could really be detrimental too. you know, so both that idea that this is where I belong in this space and then maybe not seeking the change that they might, that might be helpful. And then um, kind of limiting themselves that way, because at the end of the day, everyone is who they are and who exactly who they are exactly supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And some of that could be lost. Yeah. So on a, on a lighter note, are you, are you a TikToker? I am starting to be, I hear you are too, Sean. Oh, that is not true. That is totally not true. Um, it is, uh, I, I was told a long time ago that it's a good social media site to stay away from. So uh, I try to stay away from it as much as I possibly can. So, so, um, but apparently you like some little kid that likes to sing about corn. Is that right? Not as much as one of our mutual friends. Okay. Okay. Who That's has uh, showed me the corn, the corn videos, the corn kid, the corn kid was on the Drew Barrymore show the other day. So he's, he's apparently, apparently very trendy and popular these days because, because he likes to eat corn on the cop. So, uh, you can really, so hit cute, the, you can really hit the big time and become famous for all sorts of interesting things these days. So, uh, sure yeah, interesting though. Um, mm-hmm. coming up after we take a quick break, we've got a good guest today that we mentioned earlier, Dr. Andrea Crimmins talking about music therapy. She works Illinois State University and actually teaches this and uh, it's probably not what you think when you hear it um, she's we, we've already conducted the interview prior to uh, recording this very good interview lots of good information so enjoy the inter- interview with Dr. Cummins coming up after this break Thanks again to everybody who's listening to this podcast today. I want to tell you about another podcast that I'm a part of that you may also want to check out. Since we have a guest talking about music therapy coming up, I actually do a podcast with a couple of friends that's about music itself. So we take songs each week and we talk about what they mean and what they mean to us. And we also just have some fun talking about other things. We like to call them sidebars. That's Sean and D's Good Tape. You can check out on any of your podcast platforms. We'd be happy to have you subscribe. We haven't been doing as many podcasts this year now that the pandemic's kind of let the world be free but we still have some more planned before the end of this year that we're looking forward to and some future episodes as well so please check out sean and D's good tape on your favorite podcast platform let's get into our interview for the day if you want to introduce our guest who i talked about a little bit ago i do we have dr andrea crimmins who's associate professor of music therapy at illinois state university in addition to teaching both graduate and undergraduate graduate music therapy students, she possesses a clinical background working with mental health populations. Dr. Crimmins has worked in acute mental health, maximum security forensic psychiatry, and addiction recovery. Additionally, she serves on the board of directors for the certification uh, board of music therapists and spent several years advocating for the state recognition of music therapists in Illinois. Andrea, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's very cool. This is a this is an interesting topic. I, I think uh, you know every, everybody somehow is touched in their lives by music, and to think that there is this form of counseling or teaching people the counseling aspects to help their lives with music, that's a pretty cool thing to say that uh, that you're doing all the time. So, can you kind of explain it to our listeners about how this all works? Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who are maybe not familiar with what music therapy is or you've never worked with a music therapist, uh, the basic nutshell definition of music therapy is the use of music to help somebody with a non-musical outcome. 
We consider ourselves an allied health profession. And even though some of the musical things would look very familiar to like, let's say, what a music educator is doing or other musical things you've seen in your life, what makes a music therapist different is, is that there is a planned intent through the therapeutic process of assessment and treatment planning and data collection that is designed to get non-musical behaviors and outcomes from a particular population that maybe has a need area of growth and change. Um, <clears throat> music therapy is a credentialed profession in which students study at the undergraduate level uh, a degree in music therapy. We also have master's level education. Um, we have a certification process where music therapists, after completing educational track and uh, an internship, will sit for the board certification exam, which happens at the national level, and is standardized so that when a person calls themselves a music therapist and they've been through this education and they are credentialed by the profession that they have been trained to do these types of interventions and do this therapeutic process with music. So this is going to sound like a really dumb question, and and but but I'm I'm curious. So you've got all these students, and you've uh -huh. had them for for a number of years. And background, is it people? And this could be neither. The mm -hmm. answer to this could certainly be neither. Is it people who are going into therapy that enjoy the music aspect, or people that are from a musical background that want to see how they can further that in life and go towards the therapy route? It's both. Really? Okay. So I would say, though, that the first skill, though, that you have to have in order to become a music therapist is be a musician. And most people who come to college to be a music major have years of prior study before ever pursuing the mm -hmm. collegiate level of education. So um, our students are admitted into the School of Music as the first stepping stone into the music therapy program and they usually audition on a primary instrument of some sort maybe that be voice a band instrument um, and they're already established musicians and then they join the music therapy program and they learn more of the therapeutic applications of using that skill in music but it transforms a little bit where the more common musical tools that we use would be voice guitar, piano, various percussion instruments, that those types of interventions lead to the best outcomes. So it's really both. You have to be a therapist and have that desire to help people, but you also need to be a skilled musician in the actual performance and making of music to be able to best use that as a tool with people. And you're putting your money where your mouth is because you are a pretty accomplished musician, correct? Correct. Yeah. Give us some of your background. Well, so I started um, as a musician very young, and I knew that mu music was something that brought me intrinsic joy. I started piano when I was four, and then that stemmed into a saxophone band instrument in middle school through high school, and then I also became very interested in singing, and I started doing opera and classical music and wasn't quite sure where I was going to head for my undergrad degree, but I knew that music was the way that I wanted to go, but I also had this deep desire to help people and had always entertained a career possibly in medicine. Um, but I, I was admitted at an undergrad as a music performance major in, in vocal and piano and then started picking up other types of courses in psychology and philosophy and decided that I think I had a desire to combine both of those skills into one profession. That's very cool. Very cool. So tell me, what what is music therapy? What can we expect if we see a music therapist? What does that encompass? 
Right. So I think a music therapist is like other therapists in the terms that we follow a very similar process in working with people that have needs and we want to help them address goals and needs and um, and we want to assess clients that have a, um, a positive response to music. That's really important. Not every single person responds positively to music, but we want to find people that are going to respond positively to music, even though there's a very high percentage of people that have had music in their upbringing. Um, and the music therapist uh, can work with a variety of people. I want this to be really clear that there's a variety of populations that a music therapist works with. Um, my background, you know, happens to be predominantly in mental health, but that a music therapist could work with a neonatal intensive care units with premature babies to help use music to train non-nutritive sucking responses through a condition response through music um, to train that. Um, there are music therapists that work in end-of-life care in hospice to help people with maybe existential exploration through music and family connections and spiritual exploration as well as maintain comfort and palliative care through the hospice process. So I always say that music therapists work with people from birth to death and everything in between. So some of those other in-between examples would be uh, schools, children with autism. It would be uh, maybe uh, adults or even children with ID and DD. Um, there's a, a sector of music therapists that work in hospitals and have more medical and biomedical goals and outcomes, such as heart rates, rehabilitation type goals for physical as well as um, maybe cognitive. You see, do you have a, um, and then and then also um, some other example populations just might be general older adults, maybe well elderly as well as maybe older adults that are uh, dealing with dementia and maybe decline with Alzheimer's. We know that music has been very advantageous for those types of clients as well. How does the therapist know what type of music to use? I mean, is there a set, this is from the yep. rule book or is it all over the spec? I mean, there's a lot of different types of music out there. Yeah. How, how do you know which avenue, which way to go with people? Yeah, that's a great question. People ask me this question a lot. They're like, what is it? What should I listen to? Mm -hmm. Give me the song. This is mm -hmm. what I yeah. want to use to help me. And I don't have an answer for that specifically because music preferences and music responses are very individually and culturally defined. And they're a part of us because of those associations that we have growing up. Um, how we'll respond to certain sounds. So there are some maybe kind of general rules where people have a universal interpretation that this music sounds sedative and this might be the type of music that would relax me and this music seems stimulative and this would be the type of music that would elicit motor outcomes or would elicit energy and movement. But that's not always the case. And so that's why we can maybe start with some general applications that seem to be universal within our culture, but we also need to do individual assessment to figure out what a person's preference is because there have been some interesting research studies where what a person perceives relaxing is going to be relaxing to them and sometimes it's heavy metal and sometimes it is classical harp for different individuals, but their response is the same, but the type of music that was used is different based on that individual preference. So that would be the answer is it really depends on the person and their culture and their background. So that would have to be a really, I don't want to say hard road to travel, but when you're trying to, you know, I'm looking at the list here of things mm -hmm. that you can help somebody with, somebody that had a stroke. Mm 
Right. You know, when you're trying to use music therapy to help with that, they may not be able to communicate very well on what music right. will stimulate them or make them feel relaxed or make them feel better. Right. Whatever. I mean, I, I would think that that would be difficult because, yep. like I said a minute ago, there are a million different types of music out there. And to, to find the right one in a setting for a baby or for a, a stroke victim or somebody who can't communicate well, right. that's that's a real gift. Right. Well, and also, though, we get we can sometimes rely on people that knew them prior to the stroke sure, good point. to help yeah. us out with preferences. Um, a fun story, if you'd like to hear. I don't know if it's fun, but it's a very inspirational story to me. But I remember working in a hospital with a woman who had a stroke, and she was pretty much complete aphasia of being able to say any words in a impromptu, spontaneous way in a verbal conversation. And we had heard from her family that she absolutely loved Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. So we started playing Elvis Presley, Love Me Tender. She sang every word to that song perfectly, but could wow. not do a spontaneous speech. That's because awesome. the part of the brain that was damaged by the stroke was more of the language center. But the part of the brain that retained the music was not affected by the stroke. So she was able to sing all of those lyrics. That's a great story. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 So tell me some more stories. Yeah. Some more examples of how you've used music therapy, maybe in your clinical work. Sure. We can, um, let's talk, my first, one of my first areas of clinical work was in maximum security forensic psychiatry. And just to kind of paint a picture of what this looked like, this was um, residents who had some sort of issue uh, with the law, whether that be... Um, maybe a conviction, or maybe not convicted, but um, being charged with something, or they're going through the legal system, but they also had severe mental illness happening at the same time. So forensic psychiatry is this interface between two, the forensic piece and the mental health piece coming together in a facility where we served clients at the maximum security level, either because of the nature of the offense that they're associated with, the severity of that, or because of maybe not being safe in lower levels of security. So that was the type. And the people that I tended to work with uh, tended to be uh, personality disorders, such as antisocial personality disorder and, um, you know, levels, people who would test high on psychopathic personality traits. And I also worked with people who had different levels of schizophrenia. I tended to be my clientele here. And uh, the types of groups that I did with them in this, uh, like I said, it's inpatient setting were music-assisted relaxation groups. Um, I also did some drumming and drum circle-type groups, and I also did a group called Music Combo, and I'd like to talk about that one, and maybe I'll come back to the other two, but I wanted to talk about Music Combo because I feel like this one really had multiple levels of success just because of the nature of coming together and playing music, and people were very motivated to to play these types of music that it ended up being a very successful intervention. So it was a room where bass guitar, electric guitar, drum set, electric keyboard, uh, microphones set up, and I would form groups of about five clients and teach them, and some of them had prior music experience, uh, how to play together as a group. Hmm. And uh, for some of my clients that had personality disorders and maybe had some problems with social interaction and interacting with people in a healthy way, this was a great place to practice those types of skills. And this is how you listen to people around you. This is how you stay focused on a task. This is how you stay committed to the group. Um, this is how 
you take turns where it's your time to solo and it's not your turn to solo and this is now someone else's time and we let them have that limelight that it was really positive and helping to generate that and people were very motivated to come to this group one thing that sounds sound, stands out to me as a really well, a positive story is i had a client who was a very uh, had a very severe form of schizophrenia and tended to be very disorganized a lot of the time and he would be frequently seen uh, maybe talking to unseen stimuli, um, very disorganized in, in, in motor movements, um, couldn't have a conversation back and forth about, hey, how are you, and to answer that. But mm-hmm. he would come to the combo room, and he would sit at the drum set, and we'd get going, and he would respond perfectly to a cue to start, and he was a metronome on the drum. He was like, <laughs> back and forth. <laughs> And then he would stop, and there was none. And while the time he was playing, there was no, um, the, you know, the verbalizations that tended to be constant, the word salad that seemed to not stop very much. And in that moment, it was, I found, very beautiful. He got to be whole. Yeah. He got to be a part of this. He was able to um, have a connection with other people and be reality-based for that moment because that's what's really awesome about mm-hmm. music is the structure of music demands a reality-based moment to participate in that because mm-hmm. you have to be in time. You have to yeah. to be structured with the other people around you. And I found that to be a really inspirational story from the perspective that, for whatever reason, here's another example of where whatever was happening with schizophrenia in the brain for this person is not the same part of the brain that makes music. So music, because it is multi-activational in the brain, lots of people can engage in it if they have some impairment or disease and another part that makes it difficult for them to participate in other types of activities. We are talking to Dr. Andrea Crimmins from the School of Music at Illinois State University about music therapy and as a follow-up to your group work that you were just talking about, what kind of songs? What kind of songs do they all come together to play? Yeah, I mean it varied. Um, Mm -hmm. We would try to do some some group preferences but Mm -hmm. um, a song that I remember they all loved and I'm not sure if this is a good or a bad thing, but they loved Folsom Prison Blues by <laughs> by uh, Johnny Cash. That that was a freaking a frequent request, and they were very mo- they loved. And also, you know, some of the songs, <laughs> you know, so some of the songs that were preferences, I had to finagle those. That part of the job as the music therapist was to adapt music that might be more complicated to play, and you have to adapt it so that maybe you can teach people who have different backgrounds and musical experience. You know, really reducing things down to maybe single notes on the piano, simplifying chords on guitar, so that so part of the the way that we would pick music was also based on what the group could be successful with, based on its um, you know simplicity of being able to make that arrangement, also paired with a preference. But that was one that stood out that I remember was a frequent request. That's awesome. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> Fitting. So, uh, with this, somebody who goes into this, what do they do when they come out of it? Where do they go to work? You know that. What, where, where? How do you facilitate this in the in the professional world? So, with the students, mm-hmm. and, um, so their first, I think, stepping stone into the professional world is the six month internship that they do mm-hmm. when they complete coursework on campus, and a lot of students pick those internships 
with populations or in venues that maybe they would like to move into with a job. Sometimes they pick them for more pragmatic reasons based on the location of that internship or if they can live with their family. But I feel like most of the time that ends up being a stepping stone, which then leads to those job opportunities. So from that experience, then music therapy students really have the opportunity to look at a variety of places. If they want to work in pediatrics, then they start seeking those types of jobs. If they want to work maybe more in general hospital or physical rehabilitation, they'll head that direction. I have a handful of students that are working in hospice, and they really, really enjoy that work. There's a lot of positions open in hospice. If they go into a NICU, you know, working in a hospital uh-huh. setting like that, do they have to get further further education, or is the yeah. degree that they get from Illinois State, be it a undergrad or a master's degree, is yeah. that good enough to get them that? Yeah, that's a great question. We do have some supplemental trainings in our field. Mm-hmm. So there is a NICU music therapist training that oftentimes people who want to do the work in that, like with the NICU, would go through that training. We also have a neurologic music therapy training that people will get to do like let's say more of that physical rehabilitation Mm -hmm. for people who've had a neurologic injury or accident um but generally by state laws and licensure and that type of thing the music therapy degree is enough but it would maybe suit them to get some of this additional training to be more qualified to do that type of work that really our population after we get the basic training in music therapy probably similar to a counselor you start to specialize Mm -hmm. in an age group or in a venue and that's what music therapists do and there are ways to supplement that education and add more to that if that's where you want to create a specialty okay very nice and then one thing i think a lot of people do have a misconception about what you do Uh what's the biggest misconceptions that you hear that you're just like no that's not what it is okay so this is probably the first conversation i have it's it's always at a party right or a Uh social gathering someone says oh what do you do and i say i'm a music therapist and they're like that is so fantastic i love music therapy i listen to music every night before i go to bed and it really helps me sleep i love it music therapy is the best And I'll say, that is fantastic that music is helping you in your life. (laughs) But I don't know that I would classify that as music therapy because the the part of the music therapy definition is that it's an interactive, individualized um, plan with an intent to help somebody work on a specific goal. And there's somebody who's objectively observing the outcomes to make sure you are meeting those goals. It'd be similar. I think I was telling Laura this Mm -hmm. idea right before that. It would say something like, oh, I'm a nurse. Oh, that's so great. I love practicing nursing. I put Band-Aids on myself (laughs) when I'm at home, and I love to be a nurse. Would you kind of call that self-diagnosis like you were talking about (laughs) before? (laughs) Right. So, But that doesn't mean that you can't use music in your life and it's helpful and that that's great. But that's not music therapy because there's not that process and that relationship. But, yeah, it would would fall more into what you guys started the podcast with, with kind of more self-help and self-diagnose that we all take aspects of that for our Mm -hmm. life. But that doesn't mean you went to the counseling professional and got that therapy completed with somebody who is trained to do that. You mean you mean driving around in a car and seeing at the top of your lungs isn't the same thing? Right. No. (laughs) (laughs) So that's probably one. I have one more, too, that I like to add is sometimes I really people think that it's only just for one population of people. That's probably the second misconception I hear is like, oh, that's great. Now, music therapy is just for older people who want to sing in the nursing home. I've seen that. Oh, That's great. Okay. So oftentimes people will think of one venue that they saw and they don't think about how there's a lot of other people that we can serve. Or, oh, yeah, that's really great. That works really great in mental health. I've seen that. And then they think that's the only definition of it. 
Well, Dr. Andrea Cremens from the School of Music at Illinois State University. We appreciate you joining us today here on I've Got a Feeling, our new name for the for the podcast. Appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank it's you. been my pleasure. Thank you so much yeah, again very, for having me. Very, very interesting. And I think it certainly cleared up some misconceptions and talked a lot about things that, that I, I, would, I would guess a lot of people don't know is out there for, uh, for potential therapy when they need it for uh, various issues. Because, I mean, the, the coolest thing to me that I thought was how broad of a range that it actually covers yeah great yeah yeah very cool yeah, thank you very, very much. interesting thank so, you yeah yeah so anything else from you on this podcast what'd you think do you use music very much when you uh when you work with clients i do i do use music when i work mm-hmm. with with clients um and it's in a very small way i wouldn't call it music therapy but it does work into um to many therapeutic practices uh particularly where we're talking about brain spotting when we're with Jimmy, mm-hmm. and that's one one aspect where we do use a bilateral music, so headphones, and it would go kind of back and forth in your in your head to to try to bring both sides of the brain online. You mean kind of like music that's being played out of two different channels? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and it kind of bounces. What does it What does it do? It's the the idea is that you're stimulating both sides of the brain mm-hmm. in a way that. I don't con- congruency. Does it wake it up? Is that what you mean? Where you're using both sides at once? Yeah, maybe a deeper way to process. Hmm. You know, usually when you're brain spotting, you're processing trauma. So mm-hmm. this would be a way to access that more on that physiological level. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So music does a lot of things for a lot of people. That's very cool stuff. So I think that is it for this episode of I've Got a Feeling, our new mental health podcast. Once again, it's not called Lifting the Veil anymore. It's called I've Got a Feeling until we find out that so many people have that name yeah, too. But we did, look, we did look at it this time. Yes. We double checked. So it looks we'll see pretty if this safe. One, we'll see if this one sticks. But anyway, we'll catch you next time here on I've Got a Feeling on the CI Proud Network. Wait a second. We're not done after all. Hold on. So, okay. All right. There was something you forgot to talk about that you wanted to uh, to uh, mention, and that came with um, some recent state legislation yeah. that got right. passed into law. So yeah, I think this ties into the question that you asked me. What are some of the misconceptions about music therapy? And I think what they don't realize is that um, a music therapist is a now a licensed professional in the state of Illinois, that this is not a music therapist isn't just a volunteer that shows up at the hospital and does music. But a music therapist is a person who has not only gone through the education program, the credentialing process, but will also be licensed by the state. Um, Music therapists had worked very hard over the last uh, several years to get state recognition in Illinois. And it just recently passed and the bill was signed by the governor in the spring. So we're looking Mm -hmm. forward to seeing now a licensed music therapist that will have more access to uh, clients through being able to access some of those state-sponsored programs, as well as we feel really happy that we'll be able to have some regulation and be for sure to keep everybody safe and protect them uh, from harm, maybe from people that are doing music that wouldn't be helpful for them. So 12 years to get this through, huh? Maybe more, probably 15 to 20, but I've been working on it the whole 12 years. I've lived in the state of Illinois with a team of people in um, throughout the state. That's a quite an accomplishment because yes. because the uh, process to get uh, any bill passed into law yeah. is a slow process that can about um, about drive people a little nuts at times to right. uh, to do something like that. So congratulations! Yes, it's very on getting exciting. That through. So yeah, absolutely. So look out for licensed music therapists and uh, 
It's a great profession. So can I think you, this opens up a lot of doors. Can you do it now since it was signed in the spring or is it still that still in, in the works? Yeah, it's still like the the specifics are worked at working being worked out for the application process and all of that, the kind of logistic, pragmatic things. But uh but yeah, it's been signed as bill as a bill as a law so that music therapists need to be licensed. So very nice. Once yep. again, congratulations. Mm-hmm. And this time I think we're really done. So we'll mm-hmm. see yes. you next time. Thank you. Girl, I've got a feeling. <laughs> Perfect.